You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so Robbie's not here today. Robbie is traveling to Tulsa. He's in the air now, I think, right now as we speak. Uh, and he's traveling up there for a couple reasons, one of which is that uh, Jim Clanton, who is one of our elders, you may know, um, he is being ordained into the, uh, as a deacon in the CEEC, the Communion of Evangelical Episcopal Churches. And so Robbie is traveling with him to mark that occasion. So when you see Jim, be sure to congratulate him. That's a kind of a big step. He's been preparing for a long time with that. Um, so typically, uh, when I preach, uh, it's usually because something has gone wrong. <laughs> uh, there's an illness or something that's uh, detained Robbie in some way, and so I usually only have a few days to prepare. And I think you all have really benefited from that. That really kind of tempers how much I can kind of craft a sermon. Now, today's the exception. I've known about this for weeks. <laughs> Even I don't know what's going to happen. This hasn't happened before. So uh, if this is kind of an overwrought or overwritten sermon, uh, that's why. So <laughs> it's, a new, it's a new situation for me. Um, in 1971, a German theologian, author, priest named Karl Rahner said what at the time surely was a very bold theological statement. He made a prediction, which is, uh, I don't know, making predictions about the future I think is kind of a fruitless thing to try and do. But I think he made maybe one of the most true and prescient statements about the church of the future. And this is what he said. He said, The devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic, that's someone who has experienced something, or will cease to be anything at all. The Christian of the future will either be a mystic or nothing at all. What do we mean by mystic? Well, he kind of defines it there, someone who's experienced something. We we would say uh, a a Christian mystic is someone who has had some kind of encounter with God, some experience, something that, uh, some touch with transcendence, some brush up against divinity, and that shapes the way that they interface with their faith. That shapes the way that they think of and and uh, move in the world, and how they how they are molded in their faith. The reason why he said this, and the the problem, I think he's kind of identifying, is that. We live in a demystified age. We live in a time where if you can't kind of touch it or smell it or identify it or describe it, if you can't, um, if you can't in some way uh, explain it, then it's really, it's either something we don't understand yet or it's something that's not worth understanding. That's kind of the way that we live in. And that's, I think, Karl Rahner knows that, he noticed it, and he kind of named it. And so he said, the Christian of the future will either be a mystic or nothing at all. And 
Interestingly enough, the church's response to that truth, that reality, that we live in an age of reason, we live in the age of enlightenment, we live in the age where, uh, of, of materialism, if it's not tangible, then it's not real. Our response to that has been, I think, kind of woefully misguided. It's kind of, uh, you know, the way that we kind of retreat from larger society and we engage in culture wars. And it's actually kind of ironic Uh, That for all the complaining and browbeating that the church has done against the larger culture, the secularism of the larger culture, the empiricism of the larger culture, we've actually, I think, in ways that we're not aware of, have fallen in lockstep with it. We've kind of adapted the mentality and applied it to the way that we do this. Much in the same way that the assumption of the age is not just that it's important to understand things. But the assumption is that if you can understand something, if you can explain it, if you can define it, if you can quantify it, then you can kind of stand over it and control it and have mastery of it. And the tragic effect that we've done in taking that on is because we've reduced the faith into what we can explain, what we can reason, what we can understand with our minds, We've likewise made that assumption that we can kind of domesticate God, right? That being a Christian, being a person of faith means that we can stand above God and get God to do what we want. We don't say it that way, but we think that way and we pray that way, right? We treat prayer as though it's the means of getting God to do what we want to do. And so I think because... I mean, that's, that's the gist of this whole series is moving beyond belief. Because we've reduced the life of God, the life of faith to just what we can get into our heads, and we've taught that, I think that's why we have an entire generation of Christians who are having a crisis of faith. I mean, you've heard the, you've heard the term deconstruction before? Raise your hand if you've, you've heard that term, right? That's a term that kind of gets very broadly applied to the phenomenon of a person kind of having a crisis of faith. And um, by, by the way, this sermon's like 80% intro. Uh, <laughs> this is all introduction. I'll let you know when I actually get to the sermon. It's about 80% introduction, and it's about like 20% sermon. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of take my time with the introduction, and I'm going to move very fast through the sermon, okay? Uh, it's kind of backwards. Um, but yeah, this term deconstruction has kind of become the latest buzzword slash boogeyman in the church. And again, I think wrongheadedly and misguidedly, the church has responded to a crisis by blaming the people going through the crisis, which makes the people go through the crisis all the more, right? But it's this phenomenon where people are kind of reevaluating or rethinking or reimagining their faith over and against the faith that they've been handed. And what we've done is because we've taught that Christianity is a belief system. It's just a list of things that you can understand and offer you know, mental assent to and say, yes, I agree with that, and then that is the totality of it. You have this kind of particularly, but not exclusively, younger generation of Christians that are going out into the world, and the moment that they come up against something that doesn't fit with that worldview, the first crisis they encounter, the first diagnosis, or the first time they, you know, they lose their job or their career or the, there's a death in the family. The first time that that belief system, rigid and fixed as it is, encounters something that doesn't fit, the whole thing comes down. It comes crashing down. 
And we, true to form, our alarm has been misdirected and placed the blame on the creeping influence of secularism. And so deconstruction has kind of become a new front in those culture wars I referenced before. And my experience has been that people don't deconstruct as much as they are themselves deconstructed. It's that crisis that doesn't, that doesn't fit what they've been taught, what they've been told. This is my firsthand experience. Uh, I'm, I've told bits of this story before. I don't know if I've told it all. But I grew up in a church, very charismatic, uh, very um, hyper-charismatic, very kind of... Um, had a little bit of the prosperity gospel mixed in, a little bit of word of faith mixed in. Um, but I was taught that my beliefs, what I believe about God is all important, what I think about God. And short, the long story short of that is that um, that church kind of imploded. Um, there was a lot of things done wrong by the leadership of that church. Uh, a lot of abuses came to light. And so because my worldview, my, my, what I th- thought was true, and I thought truth was all important, when that all went away, the ground fell out from underneath me. And I had myself a crisis of faith. And by various circumstances, I found myself um, living in Jerusalem, uh, of all places, and having this crisis of faith. And so I was staying in this house with a bunch of people I didn't know, and it was, um, the wilderness was there, like you hear about the wilderness in the Bible, like the wilderness is a place there in, in Jerusalem. And so the, the back of the house went out into just kind of nothing. And so I went out and just kind of spent a lot of my time outside. And I, I, um, I climbed up on a mountain because that seems to be what people in the Bible do when they're, right? They get, they get up high somewhere, right? That seems to be a pattern. So I was like, well, I'll do what they did. That seems to be the way to talk to God is you get up high, I guess the reception's Better? I don't know how that works. And I stood there, and uh, both um, physically exposed, like up high, nothing above me, um, but very spiritually exposed, I kind of took inventory of everything that I thought I was and everything that I thought I knew, and I took my faith down to studs, down to the, the foundation, and... I was very close to walking away from all of it because it wasn't holding water up against my experience. The things that I had lived, the things that I had seen, the suffering I had seen caused by people who were selfish and who were doing abuses, and not only doing abuses to the people in the church, doing abuses in the name of God, saying it was because of God. And what I held on to, or maybe more accurately I could say it held on to me, was that no matter what, my belief system had crumbled, my thoughts about God were all in question, but what held on to me was that I had had an encounter, I had had an experience that I couldn't shake, I couldn't untaste what I had tasted. I couldn't unfeel what I had felt. I couldn't unsee what I had seen. And so I think the better alternative to the way that I was raised, and perhaps the way you were raised too, that where the the life of faith is boiled down to a belief system, 
better than belief, beyond belief, the alternative is to have an encounter with God and that be your foundation. So here's, here's the sermon in a sentence, okay? I try to do this every time. So if you've tuned out what I've said before or what I say next, hear this. If you take notes, this is the note to take. Any belief about God, no matter how great, cannot compare to any experience of God, no matter how small. I'll say that again. Any belief about God, no matter how great, cannot compare to any experience of God, no matter how small. When we talk about being beyond belief or moving beyond belief, it's not because belief is bad. Belief is good. I love thinking about God. I love theology. But that's not, our thoughts about God are not the totality of God. We heard that in the epistle passage, which we'll get to here in just a moment. This is the end of the intro. We're getting to the sermon here soon. Our beliefs, our thoughts, our thinking about God is not the totality of our faith. And if we don't move past that, if that doesn't in some way facilitate us into an experience of God, of God's goodness, of God's wisdom, of God's faithfulness, of God's blessing, of God's generosity, then it's not really worth anything. If, we have, if, if all we do here at Oasis is give you something to think about God, give you thoughts about God, but you don't have an actual encounter, an experience, if you're not that Christian of the future that's a mystic, that has had that encounter, then I'm worried you'll be nothing at all. So let's get to the, um, let's get to the sermon. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 16. This was the passage that we had read before the sermon. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which is a church he founded. And he says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I might be reading a different version than we read before, by the way, so apologies if it sounds different. Uh, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's <laughs> secret plan. For that, I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would trust not in wisdom, but in the power of God. I did this so you would trust not in wisdom, but in the power of God. In other words, I didn't come to you trying to convince you of anything. I didn't come to you with a belief system for you to try and get in your head. My preaching were very plain. It was very plain. But I came to you trusting that the Holy Spirit relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, I didn't come to teach you something. I came for you to encounter something. Yet when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom. Watch this. Yeah, this is interesting. I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, this wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 
And he says, like, with the mature Christians, and hang, hang on to that idea about, about with those who are mature, mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not wisdom wisdom, he says, right? Much like he says in the previous section there where he says, uh, where he's, he, he's describing, he's, he said, um, I tried to give you a demonstration of God's power. But how does he describe the way he lived? He said he lived in weakness and timidity, with fear and trembling, frail and contrite. Just the way that that doesn't make sense, God's power being demonstrated through weakness, God's wisdom is likewise upside down. So when he talks about speaking in, with wisdom among the mature, but not as the world understands wisdom just as the world doesn't understand power, it's because God's wisdom is upside down. That's kind of the larger point he's making in this section. Because even in chapter 1, he's talking about God's wisdom, and he goes into this section, and he's continuing to talk about God's wisdom, about how it's, it's counterintuitive, it's transrational, it's upside down. Just as God's power looks like weakness and timidity, God's wisdom looks like foolishness. The freedom we have in God looks like bondage. The blessing we have in God looks like poverty. Our minds if, don't understand that. Uh, in much the same way, uh, I'll get to that later. Let me get to that later. I'll try and remember it. But it was to us that God revealed these things by this spirit. Watch this movement. There's this, there's this arc that Paul kind of describes here. It was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except the person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit. So look at the movement Paul's describing there, right? He's talking about moving from thoughts about God to knowing God's thought, to knowing God, Right? We, we can't know God's thoughts. Our thoughts about God don't really matter until we know God. We've been given the gift of his spirit. So we've moved from knowing about God to knowing God. Let's go on. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the spirit, using the spirit's word to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. I'm going to skip down a bit. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things. Why? For we have the mind of Christ. So Paul has traced this arc moving from having thoughts about God to knowing about God to knowing God to knowing as God knows to having the mind of Christ. And remember I told you to hold on to that idea of maturity that's a journey. That doesn't happen right away. I, I got tricked into being a Christian. <laughs> I got duped. Uh, I was sold a bill of goods. I was told that being a Christian meant, like I said before, exerting a kind of power, living a Holy Spirit-empowered life, that, the, that faith and prayer and study and wisdom, all of these things were means by which I could get the kind of life that I wanted for myself. If I needed something, I'd pray to God and God would give it to me. God was a vending machine of some kind, right? And the prayers were just like, B, 13, Snickers bar, right? 
that that's what, that's what a life with faith was. It, it meant prosperity and blessing and wisdom and influence and power for myself. I was tricked. It's not that. If you were told that, I'm so sorry. That's not what it is. Like Paul says, it's upside down. Wisdom looks like foolishness. Power looks like weakness. Wealth looks like poverty. That's just, that's the shape that our, uh, that's, that's what a life in imitation of our Savior looks like. And so, for me, the movement was, I used to think, this is an analogy I've used a few times, and I, it's not perfect, but I, it's the best I've come up with. I used to think that the life of faith was like uh, owning a mine, right? And there were jewels inside, you know, diamonds and sapphires and rubies and whatever you find in mines. And that the better Christian I was, the better miner I was of that mine. I could go in there and I could kind of, with my, I don't know, pickaxe? I don't know what, I don't know anything about mining. Dynamite, right? I could go in there and I could get God's goodness and God's blessing, God's treasures for myself. I don't think that way anymore. I think that, if anything, I'm a mine. I'm a cavern. And like water, God's goodness, God's life, God's purposes, God's activity in my life move through me. They trickle through me and they leave deposits and they cut pathways and leave formations and enrich and remove and purify. And that if there's any treasures, they're being developed in me, but not for my own sake, so that I can make those available to others. I'm the mine. You're the mine. That's how God works for us, not, not, by, res- not by resourcing, uh, not by using the things of God to get what I think I want for myself. Uh, our good friend Chris Green calls that living by technique, where God becomes a technology for us to resource and to manipulate and to stand over. So how do we make this movement that Paul describes, going from knowing about God to knowing God to knowing as God knows? Well, the short answer is a life lived in Christian practice. It's slow, like the water moving through the cavern, but it's how God works. It's how God moves in us. Prayer and meditation, sacrament and fellowship. The reason that Paul says it's to the mature he's able to speak of these things is because it takes a long time. There's no quick answer to it. There's a parable I love to tell. Uh, it's the parable of the Jade Master. There was this man who was very poor, and he had a family. And he said, I've heard stories about on the other side of the mountain, there's a master jade smith. There's a person who works with jade. And he is unparalleled in his craft. He can, do, he can manipulate jade like no one else. And because we're poor and because I don't have anything else I know to do, I'm going to go and I'm going to beg this jade master to take me on as his, impre- as his apprentice. And so he said goodbye to his kids and he said goodbye to his wife and he left on this long journey over the mountain and he found the place. And he went to the man and he said, please take me on as your apprentice, I will do whatever you say, but I want to know what you know. I want to do what you do. Please take me on. And so 
the jade master said, yes, very well, come with me. And he brought him into a room, an empty room, with just a chair in it. And he had the young man sit in the chair. And he handed him a piece of jade. And he placed it in his hand. And he closed his fingers around it. And he walked out. And so the man sat there, the jade in his hand. And hours went by. The man didn't come back. At the end of the day, he came in and took the piece of jade and said, you can sleep here. We'll start again tomorrow. The next day, the same thing happened. He walked him into the room. He sat him down, placed the jade in his hand, closed his fingers around it, got up and walked out. The next day, the same thing. Days went by. Weeks went by. Months went by. And finally, the man couldn't stand it anymore. When he got into that room the next morning and the, the jade master handed him a piece of jade, he said, no, no, you've wasted my time. I came here to learn and you've taught me nothing. I've sat in this room, and I've held this jade, and I've learned nothing. My family's starving. I haven't gotten to where I need to be. We had a deal, and you didn't live up to it. The jade master didn't say anything. The young man sighed, and he sat down. He held out his hand. The jade master placed a stone in his hand. He closed his hand. He smiled, and he said, this isn't jade. And the master smiled and said, let's continue. The point in the story is that every day that young man didn't realize it, didn't, didn't, couldn't perceive it. It was happening so slowly, so gradually, but he had to. The first step in his journey was to become so intimately familiar with the touch of jade, what it feels like in his hands, the weight of it, the, the, how, how hard it is, how, where, the edges of it, what it feels like in its contours and in its, in its mass. Like, he had to go through that experience in order to get to where that guy was. And that's what the life of faith is for us. We come to this table and we pray the prayers and we engage the practices and they don't get us what we want right away. They're not supposed to. It's not, to get, it's not to get God to do what we think God ought to do. It's to be in God's presence and be thereby properly formed. That's what the life of faith is. And so I want to talk a little bit about one such practice. Uh, I, want, I, don't want to, I don't want this to all be theoretical. I want you all to have the means to have that encounter. How do we have that encounter with God? Well, it's through seeking God's presence. You should have received a card when you came in. And on this card are some prayers. These are called breath prayers. The way you breathe breath, pair, bleh, breath prayers is that the first section you say to yourself as you inhale, not out loud because that would be very, very difficult, for when you are tired. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you say it to yourself as you inhale. And then the second half of the prayer, yeah, if you didn't get one, uh, raise your hand. We want to make sure you get one of these. And as you exhale, you say the second half of the prayer. And so we've given you a few to cover kind of a few circumstances. For when you are tired, breathe in. I am weary. As you exhale, you give me rest. Let's do that real quick. Breathe in. I am weary. 
you give me rest. For when you feel anxious, breathe in. Oh God, I give you my anxieties. Oh God, you care for me. For when you are waiting on God, breathe in. I will be still. Help me wait for you. For when you need to feel God's love, breathe in. Nothing can separate, exhale, me from your love. And there's a scripture verse next to each of those to give you kind of where that's from. And when you feel that way, it might not hurt to go look at that passage. It might have something to say to you. And then we left a little spot for, because that's not the totality of our experience, right? Uh, Weariness, anxiousness, uh, waiting, and feeling like we need a touch of God's love. Uh, We put a place for you to put your own prayer. Prayerfully think about that and what you can add. And these are just a few, but the idea is this does a few things. One, uh, you're getting your body involved with the breathing, right? Because, again, it's not just in our heads. It's not just what we understand. But we want to embody our practices just as we want to embody our faith. And then uh, it is not fast. This is a slow practice. And so you have to create time for it. You have to kind of dedicate a moment to have a prayer, have a prayer like this, have, have a, a practice like this. And much like the jade apprentice, uh, don't evaluate whether or not this is doing anything for you. Because in the moment, it might not be. You might get a sense of calm and equanimity, and it might ground you for a moment, and that's all excellent. That's all so good. It's even necessary. We need that in our lives. But this is slow water. This is, this is months of holding a piece of jade. And without evaluation or skepticism or cynicism, try and do something like this for, I don't know, a month? Two months? And I promise when you let God do what God does, God will meet you. God will find you. And God will shape you into not what you think you ought to be, but who you are all along. Uh, real, real quickly, the gospel passage for today is at the in the Beatitudes where Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything but to be thrown out. And you are a city on a hill, and you are a light that shouldn't be hidden. All, what this does, this doesn't build us up into something. This doesn't... Um, These aren't techniques that we learn to kind of make ourselves what we're not. All of those things, salt, light, those are what they are. Salt is salty. Light is bright. It's addition by subtraction. It's removing that bushel. It's removing you from the things that would deplete you of your saltiness. You are as God made you. You are as God wants to be with you. These practices remove those things that are obstacles between us and God. And I promise if if you seek him, God will be found.
We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.